0: keep going back to this idea that popularity isn't credibility. And and that's really hard to tease out sometimes, you know, especially like you said, when people have like the credentials, but then you know, they may not be the right person to talk about a certain topic. Or um, and so I try to like stay in my lane when I'm, you know, you're not gonna be seeing me talk about like a OBGYN topic because that's just so outside of my comfort zone and area of expertise, myth-busting about social media. Whenever it's too good to be true, it's also a red flag.
1: All right, here we go again, everybody. Welcome back to The Selfie Show, where we are bringing you the weekly dose of sweet and salty. I am Tori, the founder and now co-host of The Selfie Show. I am a nurse, blogger, grad school student, and podcaster. And sitting across from me
2: is my beautiful co-host. Thank you. I really like how you hyped me up. Mm, yes. So I am Sam. I am a flight nurse, college professor, podcaster, powerlifter, and co-host of The Selfie Show. And today we're going to be talking off the clock with Dr. Austin Chang about health promotion in the age of mm, social media. It's going to be a good one. It's actually guys. a good day to be talking to him because he's a gastroenterologist and my stomach <laughs> is making some absurd <laughs> noises you guys, today. It has
1: been gurgling all afternoon. Something
2: is... Okay. So I also found out today that I'm anemic which explains why i'm always freezing and i bruise and you're pale so, as fuck. <laughs> okay so thank you that was aggressive it explains why i'm so pale and always freezing and bruise so badly but now i'm just blaming everything on anemia mm, like
1: yeah. sorry if i have
2: a bad attitude oh my god sorry i'm anemic i literally uh, was telling her i'm like if your stomach if
1: you guys pick up on the stomach sounds on this microphone i, I apologize like i <laughs>
2: I don't know it won't stop something I am unwell but I'm anemic so so I'm just gonna blame all my life problems on it from now on so it feels good feels good to be validated in 2021 (laughs) you're gonna be started on some serious iron supplements over here well Mm. you know maybe I'll have a nice steak dinner for Valentine's Day (laughs) there
1: you go speaking of which yes merry girl
2: single girl life tip of the week Valentine's edition here we go Honestly, okay, Valentine's Day is bullshit, right? Can we all just collectively agree on that? Yeah, it's like the, what is it, the Hallmark holiday, like exclusive. I think it's fun to still like do something nice. If you want to like use it as an excuse to do something spicy that night or dress up or just have a cute date night, I'm here for it. I'm not one of those people that's so bitter and knocking it. But at the same time, it just, it seems fake and forced to me if you're Mm -hmm. buying me a Valentine's gift because you have to because this day. I'm I into Valentine's Day. Oh, I love a Valentine's. Day. A good Valentine's, Yes, please. I'm all about a Valentine's, And yeah. I did it last year. I went out with friends and it was super fun. I yeah. think, I don't think you show your friends you appreciate them all the time. So Tori actually got me a wifey gift mm. today. She got me flowers, chocolate, donuts. Thank you.
1: <laughs> the best kind. And she knows I that are. I love
2: flowers. And so it was like. Oh, and a card. So that was like such yeah. a sweet Valentine's gift. But we don't always show our friends like we appreciate them. I think when you're in a relationship or have a significant other, to me, it would be so much more meaningful if Let's I just, just came Let's just be clear, her too.
1: I got you gifts I have not even thought about or done anything for Jacob. Suck it, Jacob, <laughs>
2: who's the real wife now. That's just it. I'm moving into no. the number one wife spot, and he's going to have to be number two. Sorry.
1: Along with Moses and Rambo. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I kind of agree where, OK, here's the thing, though. I love me a good night out, like dinner.
2: Dinner like 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 COVID COVID year too, which is so lame. I don't know. I just COVID V Day. Yeah, yeah. That that's a thing too. Maybe just like some spicy lingerie. Mm. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah, and some welcome, Jacob.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah, some hot lingerie. I mean, you know me. Like I like a spicy moment. I think it's always fun to spice it up and, you know, keep it fun, obviously. But um, I mean, Valentine's Day is, it is nice, but at the same time, I do feel like I kind of, I prefer, honestly, we talked about this off camera, the things that are, the little things throughout the year that are just nice and, you know, that's kind of more the thing. And honestly, I'm working on Valentine's Day anyway, so it's kind of all irrelevant at at this point, but, um, I don't know. I just, uh, this
2: year, what are your love languages? All of them. Okay. That is like not (laughs) how that works. No. um, Have you read the book? I have. So for me, like the – is it words of affirmation? That's actually like my number one. I would much rather get a card that yeah. says some meaningful shit in it than a Valentine's Day gift. Yeah. Honestly, I'm a strong, independent woman. I can buy my own shit. I really can. Gifts. So you gifts? gifts are nice. And I I mean, I'm not going to be like, oh, I don't want that gift. Like, please, please, if you would like to buy me a gift, feel free. Um, yeah. DM me. I'll send you my address. I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> but – um. I, to me, a card that is well thought out yeah. and well written and has meaningful words in it means so much more to me. I save all my cards. Yeah. I'm a big card person. I love mm-hmm. cards. So whenever someone gives me a thank you card for something, or if they gave me a Valentine's card, a birthday card, they write something meaningful in it. I love cards. Yeah.
1: Well, and this is why we send all of you guys your thank you. They're very personal. That they are handwritten. Emails, we handwrite
2: them. Actually, we had the conversation. Should we start on the new cards that we ordered, writing a just generic, like, thank you for supporting the selfie show, EXO, Sam and Tori. And we're like, no, handwritten is so much more meaningful. And we care about you guys enough that we want to take the time to handwrite them. Yeah, it's important.
1: Um, Yeah, so Valentine's Day, I don't know. Spice it up. Keep it fun. I do love me a good dinner. I like going to Steakhouse every now and then. Now, I don't necessarily say it needs to be on Valentine's Day, but we're starting to open up. Yeah, I don't know. Even like non-COVID years, I hate waiting yeah, that for things. Too. Well, good news is, is I'm working, so we can just go on an off day anyway. It'd probably be less less
2: expensive anyway. True. So I feel like, like they that. jack all the prices up.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I am going to probably get drunk with my dogs. <laughs> what day is Valentine's Day? Is it Saturday? Sunday? Yeah, it's Sunday. Sunday? Sunday this year. I probably will day drink with my dogs. There you go.
1: A little froze. Yeah
2: ramble moses let's go my (laughs) valentine
1: sam has the best frosé recipe i do you want it it's it's really good it's delicious uh okay question of the week from the listener we're getting such good ones yes so thank you keep them coming um we love you guys we have had a lot so we're actually gonna okay first one that we wanted to address Tips on getting hired as a new grad during
2: COVID.
1: We love that.
2: Yes. We love it enough that we want to make it a full episode.
1: We have decided that we, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be releasing a really big one for you. So yep. this one was a great inspiration, and and we have some really great ideas for you. So that one's
2: on hold. Yes. So thank you for submitting it, and we just... We can't do it enough justice is just a quick little question of the week. It deserves yeah. its full own episode. Yeah, so for sure. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm. So, so then, then this yeah. week we have, what do you think about tattoos and health care?
1: Okay. So this is actually really funny timing because I just did a TikTok on the fact that NICUs do, we hold the bare arms policy in NICUs, which means nothing from the elbows down. You do, you know, scrub in. There's no rings. There's no watches. Um, no sleeves, no white coats. Like, that. that's pretty much a standard in most NICUs. And it's funny because one of the most common questions I got was, what about tattoos? Everybody wanted to know what, what about, about them? tattoos. Do you have them? So I do not. However, the thing that I keep telling people is, and I think people, when I said sleeves, I think that they thought I meant tat- tattoos. Like, sleeves. half the people thought I meant tattoos. I mean, like, you can't
2: wear long sleeves yes, or jackets. Like, actual, tangible shirt sleeves. But, um, so, Sam... Do you have any tattoos? I have a tattoo right on my wrist. Yep. Smack dab. I mean, I have other tattoos, but you can't see them. (laughs) So it's technically a hospital policy. Our hospital policy is that you cannot have visible tattoos and they have to be covered. However, I worked in the NICU for seven years Mm -hmm. and now I still even bring patients into the NICU. So I am technically violating that policy. Well, actually, every time we
1: have worked with rts and nurses one rt in specific who had a full had full sleeves yeah
2: well basically here's what happened like so with having that tattoo i always when i had it and i started nursing school i'm like it's on my wrist i can wear a watch because in nursing we usually need a watch we need Mm -hmm. to keep time for code situations or whatever meds procedures we're doing and then when i get a job and i go into the one unit where you can't have anything below the wrist i'm like um how do i cover up this wrist tattoo i was actually Mm kind of panicked Like, what do I do? And then my manager straight up told me, well, did you have it before we hired you? Okay, well, then we hired you with it. Like, there's nothing we can do. Infection control matters more than your visible tattoo. So, yes, they want you to cover the other visible ones –
1: I do but I don't I think they're
2: so lax on that. I don't yeah, see them enforcing I don't it.
1: Think that's the hill to die on. Um no. jewelry on the face, that's a different one. Jewelry, yes. It's a, a direct
2: infection protocol, yeah. but I think most hospitals have laxed so much yeah. on even even if it is in their handbook saying you have to cover tattoos, it's not saying you can't have them. Usually it's something saying yeah. that you have to cover them. Most places don't even enforce it. Yeah. And I go to a lot of different hospitals being a transport nurse. So I see a lot of different people in healthcare from all different facilities.
1: I mean, I even know I see doctors everywhere. who have like a wrist tattoo, you know, like that's-, that's There's doctors forth. with full sleeves. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that, you know, it's per hospital, hospital policy, but I do think that's kind of something where it's our society's kind of letting up a little bit and they understand. I actually feel like sometimes like even in the EDs where like when they're intaking patients, I'm like, sometimes it's more relatable
2: if you can look at someone and be like, hey, like you look like me. I don't know. I just feel actually, like- do you know how many parents I've had ask me about my wrist tattoo and then say they love it? Yeah. I've never gotten a negative comment about it. I've always gotten what does it mean and then they love yeah. it. I mean, so, unless
1: it's like a gang sign and then you're
2: yeah, obviously be tasteful. Don't be get a giant penis tattooed on your wrist or something or some like derogatory statement yeah. that's not gonna fly well in healthcare yeah. or anything. obviously't have an, racism a on or your... <laughs> anything like that. but yeah. Yeah. yeah, tattoos in healthcare tattoos do not. I think the stigma is definitely going away.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree on that one. So you guys, um, the guest of this week is amazing. We are just, we both love him. We
2: fangirl over his TikToks. Yes, big time. All right, so we have Dr. Austin Chang. He's a gastroenterologist in Philadelphia. He specializes in advanced endoscopy and bariatric endoscopy at a large medical center. He's an assistant professor of medicine, director of endoscopic Bariatric Program and Chief Medical Social Media Officer, and he's also board certified in internal medicine, gastroenterology, and obesity medicine.
1: No big deal. He also attended Duke University, Columbia, and Harvard. Okay, smarty pants. (laughs) He's also the president and founder of the AHSM, Association for Healthcare Social Media. This is the first society for healthcare professionals in social media. We get really into that, you guys. He's also an Instagram curator, TikToker, YouTuber a very strong advocate over on social media he's a true leader in this space and this is a great episode you guys we really deep dive here with him and he has all the great things to say so let's go here we go okay oh my gosh thank you austin for coming in today we're really excited to get you on and get started so um Okay. So we are really fascinated by people's journeys, sort of the behind the count. And so for people who don't know you, um, can you give a little background about yourself, your life journey, all the deets?
0: Yeah. So I was born in Southern California and then I moved to Taiwan when I was 10. Uh, and then I was there for middle school and high school before coming back to the States for college, med school and beyond. So yeah. Um, uh, you know, I was uh, college at Duke and then went to med school at Columbia, did my internal medicine residency there as well, and then moved to Boston, uh, where I did my gastroenterology fellowship uh, at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And during that those three years, I actually did a bariatric endoscopy fellowship and got my master's in public health uh, at Harvard, and then moved to Philadelphia where I did another year of advanced endoscopy fellowship before staying on as faculty, where I've been for the past three years.
1: So wait, can we take it back to Taiwan? I want to hear a little bit about this. What was that like for you?
0: Uh, It was definitely a bit of a culture shift for me. Uh, My parents are from there. So, um, you know, getting adjusted wasn't... um, as difficult as, you know, someone who hasn't been there before. I used to go back to visit my grandparents, um, you know, for vacation. So I kind of always associated it with vacation to a certain extent. But then, you know, it was just kind of like a split second decision from my parents that we were going to up and move from California over there. Um, fortunately, I attended an American school there. So it didn't feel like too big of a transition from that standpoint. And when it came to high school, you know, I took AP classes, did that whole thing to the took the SATs, um, and the intention was always to come back to the states and resume my career here.
1: So, do you speak several
0: languages then? I do. I speak Mandarin. I speak Taiwanese, which is a dialect of that. Um, and then I also grew up. Sort of learning Spanish when I was, uh, you know, starting from when I lived in California. My mom always felt that it was important for me to pick up Spanish, and um, so I took that from fourth grade all the way until. College.
1: Yeah, we both come from backgrounds <laughs> with uh, both of our parents speak Spanish and it just was never, I don't know why, we never like learned.
0: Well, you know, some of my cousins actually grew up, you know, and their parents intentionally didn't want to teach them Mandarin because they felt... They felt that it was important for them to assimilate into, you know, America, and maybe that was part of the motivation for my for my cousins. Yeah,
2: it's oh, yeah, so useful though to, especially just in healthcare, totally. to be able to speak multiple languages.
1: Is that useful yeah, for, for you? Sure. Like, how often are you using your your different languages?
0: Now I use you know Spanish and Mandarin a little bit less, but when I whenever I have to, it really comes in handy. Uh, But when I lived in New York, like during my residency days at Columbia, the patient population was at least 80% Dominican. So they were exclusively Spanish speaking. So it came in really handy then.
2: So why gastroenterology? Yes. What was the like? Because I
0: think this is like
1: such an area where people are like, they're almost kind of like, eh, I don't know if, you know what I mean? But how did you get into this?
0: Yeah, it's not really a typically sexy field. <laughs> right, I think right. People pretty always, sexy. You know, it's pretty
1: sexy to us.
0: <laughs> but, you know, it's not like one of those fields like dermatology or, you know, even cardiology where it just seems like kind of there's like a glamorized aspect to it. Um, for For me, I kind of went into med school with a very open mind and thought I was going to just see what I became, you know, I would naturally become... Uh, interested in and um, originally I thought I was going to go into some surgical field, then changed my mind a million times, ended up going into internal medicine because I really admired the way that the residents who were teaching me, how they kind of um, practice medicine and how they thought about patients. And, And then once I got there, I really missed a procedural aspect of what surgery had to offer. So uh, gastroenterology kind of was a great option to bring back the procedural part and everything that comes with that, you know, in terms of innovation and like gadgets and all this um, sort of thing. And then... I also was fascinated by the variety of of the field. You know, we deal with a lot of different organs. It's not just like one organ, it's the entire gut and the pancreas and the liver and even other less tangible things like the microbiome and obesity. And so being able to, you know, dabble in all of those things is really um, key for me. And also just the personality of the people that I came across uh, when I was trying to make my decision about you know, what to go into. So the combination of all of those things, um, and I think right now what stands out the most is the procedural aspect and the fact that it's kind of less invasive and everything is trending towards, you know, making things less invasive. So naturally a lot of procedures that used to be handled by surgery um we're able to do now, and kind of like what interventional radiology does, and you know, interventional cardiology. So, uh so it's a pretty exciting field.
2: So, what kind of procedures do you actually do then? Yeah, let's hear about that. because It's, it's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've had like an upper GI done. That was oh yeah, super fun.
1: You had, didn't you have something out? You had your, your gallbladder. Well, I had my gallbladder
2: out, but before I got my gallbladder out, I was sick for like months, and my surgeon was like, oh. I had gallbladder sludge, and they were like, well, it could. It could heal on its own or it could become gallstones. And I was like, so are we just going to wait until I'm, like, dying to decide? And they're like, yeah. And then two months later, it was like, oh, now you have cholecystitis and cholestasis and um, you're going to go to surgery right now. And I was like, oh, cool. I'm glad I couldn't eat for two months. It's great. And did upper GI and all these other things, trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Cool. Oh,
0: my goodness. Wow, they really put you through the ringer there. Um, I... (laughs) I do. So, yeah, general gastroenterologists will do upper endoscopies or colonoscopies, but um, advanced endoscopies also, I mean, we do all that if necessary, but we also do um, like ERCPs, which are the procedures where we have to go into the bile duct or the pancreatic duct and and take stones out or, you know, put stents in if there's cancer blocking it off uh, or if there's cancer growing there to diagnose it. Um pancreatic cancer wise we deal a lot with with like doing endoscopic ultrasounds and we can do fine needle biopsies um, we also do place stents everywhere you can think of us as kind of like plumbers, human plumbers Literally. whenever there's <laughs> like, the body yeah whenever there's like a blockage for whatever reason, we can go in and <clears throat> clear up the blockage and um and then there's also other things that other devices that I use a lot like endoscopic suturing so that's part of what um I do with the bariatric endoscopy portion is weight loss procedures for people who are trying to lose weight I can go into the stomach and sew it down um or people who've regained weight after having had bariatric surgery in the past I can go in and also revise things um and uh and yeah all those you know there's a whole we use all, all sorts of different gadgets like lasers and, you know, cautery and, you know, for what, for whatever different reasons um, there are. But yeah, that's why we get to play with a lot of toys.
1: So I want to go back to this really quick because um, my mind is blown as to how accomplished you are at such a young age. And I'm saying that because you look so you look so young. You have like perfect skin. But like, oh. okay, so... It's
2: because he has good gut health. You, I'm convinced to... <laughs> that gut health is like... Actually, yeah. I will give your your profession credit because I think we're all late to the game to realize how much gut health impacts your whole body. And Mm. I'm like big on that bandwagon. (laughs) So I'm like team gut health. But I'm like convinced that that is like the key. The fountain of youth is the gut health.
0: Well, I mean, maybe to a certain extent, but I can't say that I'm the best patient. (laughs) You know, doctors don't make the doctors make the worst patients. And so. Yeah. So, like, I try, but I also don't obsess over it. Um, but thank you. I appreciate that. I, uh, I, you know, um, I think it's also maybe some genetics, like Asian genes <laughs> involved. Um. White people, we
1: age like we milk. Age, yeah, we do. but okay wait so because I want to talk about your training so you went to these outstanding facilities I mean you went to Duke you're now working for Jefferson like how can you take us through that a little bit I mean were you all were you always naturally a student and what was your training like because I think that's such a big aspect for you in the medical field right like that's very time consuming it's very rigorous what was that like for you
0: I mean I think that I never considered myself like um extraordinarily smart, you know, which it might be seem like kind of really pompous thing to say, like because of all the places I've been. But truthfully, I really put in a lot of work into into this whole process. Like I had to I'm not the type of person who can read something and just automatically absorb it on first pass. Um, and, and so I felt like I had to just really buckle down and I credit my parents a lot. You know, they were kind of stereotypical Asian parents who really pushed me along, especially like, yeah, when I was younger. Um, and then when I went to these places, I felt that I had, I was, I surrounded myself with good people. So I, I I was fortunate in finding people who were also, um, pretty focused on what they were doing and, and, um, you know, a lot of it was kind of just, also coming across people just very fortuitously, um, being able to, yeah, find a a good group of people to, to work with and study with and be inspired by. Um, and you know, so I had that in med school, honestly, actually in college, interestingly, like had I not been with that group of friends, I wouldn't have taken the MCAT when I did because I had no clue what I was doing. And all of them decided to, you know, hang out one summer to like take summer classes and study for the MCAT and I was like well I guess I'm doing that too because I I have no idea like I didn't look into it myself until they mentioned it and um and then when I went to med school I also like had a core group of um kind of study buddies there were the three of us and we would just like we would go out together we would study together we would just like hang out um and that's what that's what got me through that and um and then after that, you know, after halfway through med school, it sort of becomes learning on the job. So it isn't so much like exam studying. And, and that was, that to me was just super interesting because I finally, you know, the clinical stuff is exactly why we go into medicine in the first place. And, um, and so, you know, I kind of found myself really just enjoying that process.
2: Did you go to undergrad with the intention of applying to med school? Or like, what was your Um, undergrad major?
0: Yeah, my undergrad major was biology. So a lot of that was because it was convenient to fulfill all the pre-med requirements and major in biology. Um, But my minor was in music. And the approach I took going into college was, I'm just going to like take a whole bunch of classes. And I'm going to, I had the idea that medicine was probably the path that I was going to go down, but I wanted to make sure that I gave everything a little bit of a chance. So I would take like economics and political science and I would take, um, you know, a lot of different things just to make sure. And, and I think that that was, so I felt like I had a really full college experience, um, as a result, but I kind of knew because I had a couple physicians in my family. My cousin's a plastic surgeon. I have another cousin who's an ophthalmologist. My grandfather who I've never met was, um, a surgeon in the world war II era. Um so medicine was kind of like in the family a bit but um but not directly because my parents aren't they're not in medicine at all and um and you know I think I had to just really do a little soul searching um in college and and ask myself what would be kind of a good career that would meld my interests in like the sciences and the interest in helping people And, um, you know, what suits my personality the best.
1: I would like to take or go through sort of some myth busters or things about all things like health gut 101. This is so on the forefront.
0: Yeah, well, I'll preface this by saying that I am not, you know, what I would consider like a full-fledged microbiome expert. There are people in my field who are truly, you know, devoted to researching this area. But what I can say is that a lot about maybe medicine in general, but certainly about gastroenterology and the microbiome, is that there's um, – I think the public thinks we know a lot more than we actually do. <laughs> there's still a lot of questions that are unanswered. And you know so, more than um, the
2: people on Instagram. Yeah, with all the
1: like... <laughs> health nutrition women on Insta- – or, you know, people on
0: Instagram. <laughs> yeah, no. I like – I've been – On this rampage on Instagram, with I'm obsessed right
2: now with your latest (laughs) war on bad Instagram posts.
0: I don't know why, but they just keep showing up on my Explore feed. Today, the one you posted
2: with the (laughs) calories, where they you're like, can you at least draw the stomach in the right direction? (laughs) There's this situs inversus. I was like, yes.
0: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I think the microbiome, and yeah, it's got me fired up because. Maybe, I don't know if it's just the time of year or what it is, but so many people are talking about probiotics, I think, at least in my view, like more so than usual. And, um, and you know, we have guidelines that came out through the American Gastroenterological Association, which is one of our big societies, the AGA, that came out just within the past couple of months about probiotics. And the truth of the matter is that there's very few reasons that are truly recommended. And even in the situations where it's recommended, the evidence is not great. Um, So, you know, sometimes they're saying like, well, for people who are on antibiotics or people who have pouchitis or um, people, kids who, um, you know, are at risk of developing you know, certain conditions, necrotizing enterocolitis should be on it. But everything else, a lot of the things that people often would imagine we would say, yes, be on probiotics for, are actually not indications. Like they say only in like IBS, IBD, uh, C. diff, these should be only done in trial settings. And the problem with like probiotics is that, you know, they're not regulated by the FDA. Um even what what's being sold out in, you know, your drugstores or supermarkets, you know, aren't necessarily what's being used in the, aren't the formulations that are being used in, <clears throat> excuse me, in trials. And, um, and what's out there, because they're not regulated, just vary so widely in terms of how many CFUs are in it, how many, you know, we don't even know like what additives there might be in these probiotic products um there's just no consistency and no standard and um and so what might be out there on the market if it does help somebody and does help relieve their symptoms great but um but that's all very very anecdotal and not well studied so you know, in terms of like these associations that people also draw with, you know, um, your immune system or like obesity and how probiotics can potentially how the microbiome can impact that. I think we're all still trying to understand that. And um, in terms of a therapeutic, like a probiotic medication or something to recommend to people to take, like we're still very far from from that.
1: In your opinion, um, this may maybe like a super general question, but what how do you achieve a healthy gut biome? Like what what are some tips you can give to our listeners to, you know, establish a good good gut health?
0: Yeah, it's, it's difficult because, you know, gut health can vary by so much. You know, are we talking about constipation? Are we talking about bloating? Are we talking about inflammation, cancer prevention? I feel like there's a different propo- approach for all of these different things. Um, and I would say that, you know, a lot of these supplements that are out there, whether it's like apple cider vinegar or like celery juice or, you know, anything that's being sold out there, just there's just no true evidence to back it up. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there's probably very little harm in like taking apple cider vinegar if you want to and enjoy it. But at the same time, you know, if you want to save some money, you'd probably not worth, you know, trying to use it or replacing, um, replacing, you know, actual medical therapy with that. I think that's our biggest concern is that people are going to delay their care by adopting some of these as remedies instead. I think that, you know, a a diet that sort of is leaning towards a plant-based diet that is diverse, I think that that's probably the most important thing, like diversifying your gut microbiome is something that we always talk about. Um, And that's really just, you know, making sure that you're eating more like whole foods that are not processed. Um, But other than that, there's really very little that we can say about, you know, exact things that will truly impact your health in general.
2: What about gluten? Yeah. Ooh, glu- Remember gluten. how that got villainized? Yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah. true celiacs exist, but then everyone is all of a sudden like, I'm gluten intolerant. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Uh, the gluten-free kind of craze has really gotten, <laughs> got, gotten like, yeah, blown out of proportion a bit. Um I think exactly what you said people with celiac disease definitely need to be gluten free but aside from that you know um there's we just don't know you know there yeah, may be some people Yeah one time my stepmom
2: who... made gluten free waffles for christmas and I was like what is this shit <laughs> this tastes terrible like I'm not if I'm going to eat a waffle you better put some damn totally gluten loaded, in it yeah. like what is this it's Yeah awful, so the was... concern
0: is that like you know people who don't need to be on a gluten-free diet, you know, they may actually be limiting some of the foods that they're taking in and some of the potential, like, nutritious benefits of certain foods if they're limiting themselves to a gluten-free diet um, when they don't have to be. And that's not to say that some people might not actually have, like, gluten sensitivity, but the experts in our field really say that um, they think that a lot of people who have gluten sensitivity or say they have gluten sensitivity are probably sensitive to other things in foods that also happen to have gluten in them because true gluten sensitivity is probably actually really rare. Um, So, you know, it's hard. I think that's why it's difficult to tease out. And honestly, I think that there's very little um, actual expertise in the area out there. And so in, you know, busy medical practices, I think people are just quick to recommend like, don't just eliminate this from your diet or eliminate that and try it and see what you can do. And um, but, you know, I, I think that hopefully in the future, we'll be able to have ways to actually assess for certain intolerances or sensitivities better.
1: This is a great Oh, just popped in my mind. What about all these testing kits that are coming out uh, for, yeah. you know, to test. I was just going to ask about yeah. like
2: all of the like allergy testing, allergy testing and, and diet food testing. sensitivity testing yeah. and stuff is that even yeah. like accurate really yeah. or
0: i'm going to say no <laughs> 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 I, I don't buy into any of it yeah and, and the, the issue is that like when you get the results from those um those tests and you take it to your doctor we we don't know what to do with them because it's not um there's no kind of follow up that's technically recommended with some of the... It's like when you get 23andMe done, you know, all the genetic testing, and you take that information to your doctor, and what are you supposed to do about that? Like, there's not very much you can do about some of that. So, and that's been a a kind of controversial um, area about that. But again, hopefully, like in the future, we'll have a little more guidance. but, um, But yeah, sometimes... That's why being putting your care in the hands of medical professionals who can kind of like not use a shotgun approach and test for everything, but kind of, kind of, um, you know, focus the testing a bit is really helpful, because yeah, the more you test for things, the more things may end up showing coming up as positive, but some of that might not actually be absolutely true, or sometimes it's not taken in the right context. so um, I wouldn't recommend those.
1: I want to go back to this because you kind of mentioned it, Um, IBS versus IBD. Can you dive into these a little bit? Because I think that this definitely is on the forefront of health and gut health and things like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, if I had to summarize very simply the difference between IBS and IBD is that both can be very uncomfortable, but IBS is not a life-threatening condition, whereas IBD, inflammatory bowel disease um, versus IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome, IBD can actually be life-threatening if it's severe. And the difference is that IBS, um, kind of on the surface, we can't see if there's any inflammation. Uh, There's, you know, some controversy about whether or not there's an inflammatory element to IBS, but IBD is truly an inflammatory bowel disease. um, And depending that the two uh, main conditions are Crohn's disease versus ulcerative colitis. Those are considered inflammatory bowel diseases. And if you can imagine, inflammation can become so bad that some people may require surgery um, because of the active inflammation that's going on. And likewise, uh, these patients may also require medications that are anti-inflammatory medications that actually target the, uh, the inflammatory pathway to calm down the inflammation and keep inflammatory bowel disease in remission. So it never goes away. There's no cure for IBD, you know, unlike what some of these Instagram posts will say, <laughs> but you can drive IBD into remission. Um, so there are definitely people who can, you know, live normal lives with normal life expectancies, um, you know, if, they're, if their disease is under control.
1: When do you think um, people should be seeking out someone like you in the field? Like how- When or how should they be approaching, like, seeing a specialist?
0: I'm of the mindset that patients should always go through their primary care doctor for non-urgent things, and hopefully, if the system works the way it should, their primary care doctor should be able to refer the patient appropriately to a gastroenterologist if that's the right person to see. Like, for instance, you know, if you were to have a gallbladder, you know, cholecystitis, um... That shouldn't come to us. that should be something that goes to a general surgeon. But if it's something that's not an uh, acute issue like that, you know there may be other reasons to go see a gastroenterologist so I mean if there's abdominal pain or acid reflux or you know um, cysts in the pancreas that might be that might be found on imaging. Um, These are all reasons that people end up seeing a gastroenterologist or even like constipation, you know, really severe cases of constipation or diarrhea. You know, that's a reason to see a gastroenterologist as well. But as we move on, um, there's just the whole field is also um, diverging and there's so many subspecialties now. So as we mentioned, inflammatory bowel disease, there are actually specialists who are devoted to just that. Um, and also people who are devoted to motility disorders and like constipation or like esophageal motility uh, disorders, and then people like me who are focused on just the complex procedures and and you know diagnosing like pancreatic cancers and masses and cysts and um, and liver transplant doctors, you know so it's all becoming very granular um, and uh, and sometimes that's that decision isn't made kind of on the first referral from your primary care doctor. But after you see another gastroenterologist, they may say, actually, you need to see yet another specialist. Um, so, you know, that's usually the process that that patients will go down.
1: So a big hot topic, obviously, here in the US is obesity. Like obesity seems to be over, you know, in our nation, a huge issue. Um, and I really like your take on it. I've, I know you've spoken out about this a couple times. And You know, just sort of getting to the root of it. What do you feel like? Can you speak to maybe your feels or your thoughts on obesity in general, and like how you know, as a specialist, like what do you see? Well,
0: I think that obesity, yeah, clearly has a tremendous impact on our nation, and even like economically on our healthcare system, Um, and beyond that too. You know, if you can imagine, like people with obesity related conditions, um, having to suffer through those and, you know, affecting their, their work lives, et cetera. Um, but I think that we also need to be very aware of weight bias. That's like a, something that I've been pretty focused on. Um, I think
2: you posted about that today, today. Uh, your that's... TED talk yeah. post. And yeah. I was like, so <laughs> yeah. happy about that. Cause we kind of, we did an episode about body yes. image, um, a couple weeks ago where we just touched on the missed opportunities in healthcare for people because if they assume the bias of if you're skinny, you're healthy, if you're fat, you're unhealthy, and how that actually provides bad care to both sides of the spectrum. So I love that that's something you're actually like speaking on. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's this notion that, you know, if you are, if you look a certain way, then you're automatically unhealthy, or if you fall into a certain BMI category, you're automatically unhealthy. I mean, there's some of the comments on that posts where like, you know, you are, t- you know, too, um, I forgot how they phrased it, but basically they were saying that this is where you're going wrong as a doctor. You should be raising awareness about obesity, not downplaying it. And I'm like, well, I'm not really downplaying it. What I'm saying is that you can't lump everybody with a BMI greater than or equal to 30 into a, the same category. And you can't assume that just because somebody looks a certain way that they're unhealthy because likewise people can look like they're healthy and not be healthy at all, whether it's, you know, in their physical health or their mental health. And I think there's just so much that goes into it. And, um, and there's this, you know, the idea behind weight bias and the stigma that people face, you know, um, is also fueled by um, this idea that, you know, somehow patients have brought this on themselves, and they're uh, lazy, and they're not, they don't, they lack the willpower. And that's, clearly not true because there's just so much else that goes into it, whether it's environment, whether it's, you know, their um, their, yeah, their working environment or their living environment, um, their histories, their, uh, you know, there's just so much that, that can impact it. And we have to be very aware of that. And when I speak to patients who come to see me for these things, I also have to be mindful of, you know, all these contributors. Um, so, you know, it's not to say that I am downplaying the effects of obesity it's that you know when i uh see patients who suffer from obesity i'm just trying to be very careful and respectful of this and and you know weight loss is a really personal decision fortunately patients who come to see me are usually those who already you know are are um you know on this journey of wanting to lose weight not there to um force people to lose weight right like i forcing that that on someone who doesn't want to um, it's just not going to, you know, provide the outcome that we want anyway. Um, and, and so I just want to make sure that patients are ready for this and that we're on the same page and that there that there's a team approach there because patients going at it alone also isn't the right approach. We need to have like a whole team looking out for every aspect of their health, whether it's, you know, making sure that their cardiac risk factors are addressed, whether it's seeing a dietician or, um, you know, that their sleep is well addressed because there's a lot of sleep issues with people who are suffering from sleep apnea and whatnot, or even psychiatry as well. So, um, you know, making sure that patients are well supported in that way is important.
2: Do you think patients that are obese either avoid or delay seeking out care because they're afraid of that healthcare provider bias or stigma? Associated with that oh weight? yeah,
0: absolutely. I think um, I think that that definitely is uh, is true. And actually, there were surveys that were done not too long ago. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but there's a lot of health professionals out there who still maintain those biases. So they're probably it's not even like a concern that patients have. They're probably experiencing it actively from their own you know providers. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think that that's a big reason why, for instance, for patients who qualify for bariatric surgery, only 1% of patients actually end up getting it. Um, and I think there's also this general idea that, oh, there's, there's a way we can, I don't need that help. You know, I think, you know, we're so tuned into like not being very independent and trying to fix things ourselves that like, we don't need help. And, um, and if we can kind of reorient the thinking to be that this is a tool, it's not, um, you know, it's not a end all be all, but it's a tool, one part of a treatment plan. Maybe that's a little more helpful. Um, but yeah, I think that, uh, and giving patients more options that are actually available to them. I think a lot of people are not aware that certain weight loss medications are available or certain procedures are available that may be a little less invasive that, um, you know, if they're concerned about that sort of thing.
2: Do you think there's also the stigma of people that maybe qualify for those bariatric procedures, but they're afraid of like, oh, it looks like they took the easy way out, or they were just – they're cheating it, it. they're too lazy to like – diet and exercise. So they just want to do the surgery and take the easy way out, not really understanding that that's like, I think you called it a tool and it is a tool because it's not a magic fix. Right.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I see these comments on social media all the time on my posts saying like, oh, just eat less. And and I think that's just super insensitive because, you know, patients – honestly most of my patients have already tried that you know they've already tried a lot of the conventional things and some of them actually need to rapidly lose weight to get their knee replacement to allow them to be a little more mobile or they need to get a heart transplant and you know everyone I think we just all need to take a step back and like give each other space to to um, fulfill whatever goals you know everyone has on their own.
2: Well, even like post-op for those procedures, that's not just a walk in the park for those people, too, because they still have to put in work post-op. It's not, again, just like some easy fix where I think that that a lot of people like stereotype that is like, oh, or I think you'll see people on social media who will be like lost weight naturally, like they are better than someone who lost weight with the help of bariatric procedures, too. I think that's something I see like in the social media space.
0: That's a great point. Yeah, I yeah, it's a it's frustrating. And I tell all of my patients that, you know, this is, like I said, a tool. So it's going to get you it's going to help you uh, to a certain extent, but then maintaining that weight loss or getting any further than what that tool can provide you is going to be you know up to dietary changes and physical activity and um and so you know just using this as like a a magic you know as a magic bullet isn't going to isn't going to you know actually um take care of it you have to kind of see it as one part of the the whole the whole thing
1: yeah i just think this is such a great topic you know it's like kind of it's meeting patients where they're at sort of that we we talked about this on an episode of like a body neutral mindset where you know we're just meeting people where they're at and um you know just trying to figure out what the best course of of action is for that patient and it's funny because i have a family member who went in for um, a consult for a procedure and i think it was the it's a gastric And okay. the doctor asked her, um, you know, why are you here? What, you know, what's the real, you know, give me the real reason. And she said that um, a good friend of hers had recently gotten the procedure. And her quote was, I cheated and, you know, got the procedure. And his response as a doctor was, why do you consider that cheating? Mm-hmm. And I, like you, kind of as you we were saying, like he was, you know, this is a tool. Like, you know, it, most people who come or at that situation have tried other things, they've gone through the diet routes, they've gone through all these things. And for whatever reason, or another, it just, you know, wasn't able, they weren't achieve, achieving their goals. And I liked his take on it, because he was like, you know, I don't know why people are, are seeing this as quote, unquote, cheating.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and I think that we also have to see obesity as a chronic condition that isn't, um, you know, that sometimes we'll have to be treated long term. And and it's so strange that we don't see that there are certain conditions out there like obesity, like a lot of mental health conditions that people don't see as um, kind of conditions just like everything else that we treat, like diabetes or high blood pressure that we have to, you know, um, keep an eye on for, you know, sometimes for people's entire lifetimes.
1: So, sort of along that bloodline, how can you g- dive into a little bit of like diet pills, weight loss? I mean that you're obviously an expert in this field. What are your thoughts on these?
0: Well, I think that there is a clear distinction between what diet pills are and what weight loss medications are. Um, so I mean, interestingly, I made a YouTube video, I think last week about this, but to me, like diet pills, not all pills are medications, you know and um and just because. People are selling pills that say that they're going to help you lose weight. It doesn't necessarily work. And then there's also medications out there, some of which are meant for short-term use versus long-term use, and um, and actually have data to back it up to tell you, to show that there is you know a significant amount of weight that can uh, weight loss that can be achieved with those medications. And they act all in different ways. Um, some medications act on kind of the neurotransmitter system, those signals to the brain that tell you that you're full or you're hungry. Um, there's others that, uh, kind of block off the absorption of fat and each of them has their own side effect profile. Not all of them might be appropriate for, you know, various groups of patients. So, um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's something that, you know, I I will offer to patients and a lot of people get a lot of benefit through them. Again, it's just like another tool, um, but it's a matter of picking which one's the right one.
2: Do you ever or do you always kind of refer to a psychiatrist? Because I know like some people have used like Wellbutrin or vivance, mm-hmm. having both like weight loss side effects, but it's kind of like a two for one special <laughs> almost of like addressing <laughs> certain mental health disorders on top of having that be like a side effect or is that something kind of like let me loop in psychiatry for this rodeo
0: yeah I think that sometimes I do um you know I do assess patients to see if they have uh underlying eating disorders that can be contributing to um you know their struggles uh but if they are on certain anti-depression medications or anti-anxiety medications um so I will run it by their psychiatrist first, whether or not certain meds are appropriate. Um, one of the FDA-approved medications is a combination of Welbutrin and Naltrexone, and um, and so if somebody's already on Welbutrin, technically they shouldn't be on that medication. Um, but if they, you know, if they're not, if they're on other antidepressants, um, I will ask the the psychiatrist if this addition is okay, um, because I don't want any interference with. You know what they're already on and if they're already on something else that's working really well for them i tend not to want to rock the boat and try to find another workaround
1: you guys all know we want things convenient anytime anywhere through a computer tablet or smartphone so why
2: don't you make that your therapy and you know tori and i are big on therapy mm-hmm. we're so happy to be partnered with BetterHelp. It's an online platform where it provides therapy of all kinds to you and it's customized and it's tailored specific and unique to you. You get 10% off your first month. If you use our code selfie at checkout,
1: that's betterhelp.com forward slash selfie for 10% off your first month, betterhelp.com forward slash selfie, betterhelp.com forward slash selfie. All right, let's get back into the show. What I love about this whole last year was the networking that was sort of going on within the medical field. I feel like our presence, the irony of this whole past year, I think the one thing that really opened up both of our eyes was how many providers are here in social media and, you know, the amount of content and the creativity that's really coming out. And you, for sure, we we just love your content
2: i feel like the pandemic like brought us all together as a community like doctors nurses other like specialties and everything we're just like unite yeah we're all in this together yeah we
1: we definitely saw that and so it's funny because i've done a deep dive into you obviously you're on instagram you're on youtube you're all, all on these platforms how did this all start for you
0: this kind of starting point of all this was understanding that patients get their information not from us as clinicians, you know, in our very brief encounters, but from everywhere else, whether it's traditional media or social media. Dr. So Google. A <laughs> Dr. Google. Dr. Google, yes. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, I was curious as to, like, how uh, people would get their, how the medical news was being vetted, um and you know how are the news networks actually dealing with this like who gets to decide what shows up on the evening news so i spent some time at abc news and long story short in the process i learned that they were using twitter at the time to host weekly discussions about health and so i got on twitter and started talking about what i was learning i was a trainee at the time and would like live tweet the conferences that i would attend and i was probably one of the first maybe five gastroenterologists on there um and then it kind of grew from there in the process of justifying my use of social media because people just didn't believe in what I was doing at the time i started doing social media research um and uh started you know building a following and then advising all the different gi societies on social media use and then kind of focused on instagram back in i think i made the conscious decision to go professional in 2017 on instagram And then one thing led to another and YouTube came along and then TikTok and uh, and that sort of like, you know, blossomed. Then um, I became the chief medical social media officer for our 14 hospital system, Jefferson, and also founded the Association for Healthcare Social Media. Um, which is the first nonprofit professional society for social media to kind of help other health professionals out in using social media effectively, but also responsibly and also kind of build legitimacy around what we're all spending time doing here, because I think that we, we need more health professionals to be online to talk about their areas of expertise.
1: Yeah, I agree. This is such a it's funny, because I feel like it's such a taboo topic in the medical field is to be on social media, because I think it's seen as either, you know, showy, or it's seen as, you know, unprofessional. unprofessional. But the Mm. irony, like you said, is the consumers, that's where they're, they're all on their phones. They're all on Instagram, TikTok, they're all on these platforms. And so it's so important. I So the Social Media Association, can you dive into that a little bit more?
0: So it actually came about in late 2018. There was a hashtag campaign that I started called Verify Healthcare. And back then, a lot of us were noticing this trend of just a lot of people talking about health topics without... Any transparency or um, you know a- any understanding of what their credentials were, so I basically approached a bunch of uh, my friends online and had everyone um, join in on this campaign where people were disclosing what their credentials were and encouraging their followers to kind of double and triple check who they were trusting online, and um, and then you know delving into that we started we started recognizing that there were just so much more about social media that was either problematic or unaddressed that we wanted to learn more about how to deal with these different things. So, um so we decided to start a professional society and like I said to kind of also legitimize what we're doing and communicate with other organizations and institutions about social media use in the future. So, you know, we're still at the even though this is a, about a year over a year old, we're still at the outset of you know, forming this organization, but we are in the process of creating a resource library. You know, some things that people often don't think about with dealing with social media, whether it's addressing, you know, um, hate comments or like people being doxed or canceled online, whether it is, uh, you know, how to, you know, communicate your social media presence with your institutions or uh, that sort of thing. And we've collaborated with the social media platforms themselves to have uh, mini courses about, you know, how to get started or how to optimize your use. Uh, So YouTube has worked with us and we're actually going to be having a couple more sessions pretty soon. Um, LinkedIn and then we're in talks with some of the other social media platforms as well. And we're also going to be doing, um, providing some like research funding for people who want to do social media research as well. And yeah, so it's going to be, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, social media is not going to go anywhere. So hopefully we'll just continue to to be of a a resource to everyone.
2: Do you think there was initial pushback when you started this social media journey with like how you said, go professionally from not only people in your profession, but even just the institutions you worked with.
0: Yes, definitely. Uh, I think that you know, from an, if you think of it from an institutional standpoint, I would say a lot of institutions are very conservative about you know allowing their employees to just speak openly about anything, their opinions about everything online, and the more they're able to control it, the better. But you know, in this day and age, in twenty twenty one now. You social media is just a part of everyone's lives now. So um, we're kind of playing catch up. And um, I was very fortunate that, you know, when I got to Jefferson, Jefferson's a very kind of forward thinking place to work. And um, and which is why I have this position here. And they gave me a lot of support to to do this sort of thing. Um, But, yeah, in general, it's not that way. And it's something that we have to move the needle on. I think it's
2: something Tori and I Um, feel like we have to Mm -hmm. be very um, Careful. careful and calculated with what we say and the things we talk about, even though we don't disclose where we work or anything like that. It's just a lot of institutions don't seem to be as forward thinking as Jefferson in terms of their social media usage, which I think is great because... That is the future. That is where we are now. And that is where people are getting, especially with this whole vaccine rollout. Everyone's getting their information. Everyone that's been anti-COVID-19 vaccine and that tells me to do their own research and then their own research is always some like YouTube link. It's never (laughs) a peer-reviewed study is not the, the do your own research crowd has never heard of a peer-reviewed study or does not have access to a medical journal. So the fact that we can actually have providers like yourself, that are verified right. in this space, actually providing accurate information is so valuable. And right. I think it's cool that you're working at an institution that is um, promoting that. And I would love to see more places kind of jump on the bandwagon with I that. I too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that it, how we get there is that we need to, There, it's a kind of a trust between the clinicians and the you know, and the administrators at, at each hospital. And so, you know, they also um, see what I do and they are able to trust what I, you know, how I approach it. And that's the thing is that as long as we can kind of spread the word within our institution to other clinicians then everyone can kind of do it appropriately in a trustworthy way. Um, But I think we just need more resources. You know, a lot of the thought leaders out there are not spending time on social media because they have no incentive to. And so that's something that we're working on as well. Um, But yeah, it's definitely, uh, yeah, it's, you know, I've faced some backlash here and there. um, But especially with the pandemic, like you said, it's, highlighted the fact that social media is so important and you know has true kind of impact on public health right like all the you know fake news and all the false information out there it's really impacted how people how we've been able to respond to this pandemic
1: right as far as the social media association like what are like big big term goals with that do you have any like long-term goals with that
0: Well, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting. Originally, I think people had this perception that we were policing the internet, which is not where we wanted to go. So we're making this shift in 2021 to be more resource-based. And so I think that's really the key thing is, I think the goal is already what we're working on with um, involving the platforms themselves, the social media platforms to help us out. And honestly, the pandemic has really helped fuel that a lot. You know, i I would think that if the pandemic didn't happen, they probably wouldn't end up reaching out to me. But in the past year, you know, I've gotten, um, you know, been able to establish some relationships with TikTok and, you know, Instagram and, uh, and YouTube. And had it not been for the pandemic, I don't think that they would have been so receptive. So now we're able to start having those conversations with them, see how we can help out with, you know, addressing misinformation and getting more people online and doing it well.
1: Who should be applying to the your association? Who do you recommend it for?
0: So I think we kept it pretty open door. So anyone who has uh, any is playing any role in healthcare. Initially, we were thinking clinicians only, but then we realized that there's a lot more people out there who have patient contact, whether it's people who are patient navigators or uh, people who are doing social media for their office practices, um, or you know tr- medical trainees, people who are just you know going through the training process. And, and so now there's, uh, or even industry members, I should say, um, who are looking to capitalize on social media to spread the word about, you know, whatever they, they are doing. And I think that there's a way to do that, um, appropriately and ethically that is not going to compromise, you know, what everyone's perception is of healthcare. So basically all comers when it comes to health and, um, and yeah, so ahsm.org is our website. It's currently under construction. We're gonna have a brand new website in a couple weeks, Um, but yeah, so it's gonna it's gonna look a bit different. (laughs)
1: We're gonna um, we'll link that in the show notes, and then we'll do um, we'll do a highlight for that because I think that this is a huge resource for all of us. Um, You know, I feel like for me, it's I mean, I'm I'll be joining. Hello, Um, but I just think that this is you're right in the sense of I do think there's a way a right way and sort of not a wrong way, but to steer the medical field or the medical professionals who want to have that presence and sort of had some guidance as to how to kind of start and where to do it. Um, I know for me, you know, it's been navigating like blindly. Like a lot of this, like I am just sort of, you know, doing it and learning know, as ca- you go. Learning as you go. Um, and so I think that's a great, you know, it's it's so important to highlight right now, just because of where, you know, social media, as you said, it's not going anywhere, and I think it's actually a great tool. That we should be using for upcomers or people who are looking for answers, um, and I, you know, having that sort of framework to kind of help us, I think would be it's excellent. I think it's a wonderful thing that we all need.
0: Yeah, you know, originally we set out to put out best practices, and then we realized that that's really difficult to do for everyone to agree on best practices. First of all, and second of all, with how quickly the platforms were evolving. I mean, this past year, I feel like they're just these platforms just completely started adopting so many different features and and it just to keep up with that is really difficult and honestly now that I am communicating with some of these platforms a lot of them don't have it sorted out either yet you know they're trying to just test the grounds with like when they rolled out Instagram reels there's things that they're still constantly changing about that and YouTube is also doing the same thing with their shorts and and you know Snapchat
2: okay so secretly but not so secretly which is your favorite platform to post
0: yes (laughs) Um, Who's your
2: favorite I think, child?
0: <laughs> I want to say that um, it's a toss-up between Instagram and TikTok. Based TikTok on, is
2: so fun. You're fun. Your
0: TikTok yeah. love is your great.
1: TikTok. Yeah, I agree.
0: Well, it's it's interesting because as consuming TikToks is really fun for me, but like creating TikToks, I think sometimes I overthink it. And no, and they're good. Really they're so good. Out.
2: TikToks <laughs> are so fire. hard to make. Those transitions, I'm like, okay, I can seriously save your life up in the back of a helicopter, but I can't make a smooth TikTok transition <laughs> yeah, to yeah. save someone's life. Like <laughs> if their life depended on it and they were like, do this smooth TikTok transition. I'm like, sorry. <laughs> I cannot. It's hard.
0: But yeah, it's, uh, I gotta give those all
2: 18 year olds credit.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. I mean, I don't know how some people do it so well. I think I, I, um, I just think the creativity
2: on there is yeah, your and
1: your creativity. What's your creative process like? Like, I'm curious. How do you how do you do them?
0: I honestly don't have much of a creative process. It's just whatever comes to mind, and you know, whatever is trending, I'll sort of see what you know what kind of sticks and how some things just kind of. I have ideas, but I don't really have a way to convey it. And if a trend comes along, or if a you know, if something comes along that matches what I'm trying to convey, I'll like be able to put it together. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, and you know, I think that I have, I have my opinions about, you know, it's some, some parts of TikTok and how the algorithm just rewards like,
2: oh, you for know, sure. some people who
0: are, yeah. Like I feel like there's still issues that have to be sorted out with the platform because there's a lot of people who just explode and um, go viral and, you know, have millions of followers who, might not be putting out the best sort of information.
2: I think all the algorithms, like even it's like Instagram want to shadow ban me today. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Why not? It's like, and then some days it's like this post for no apparent reason blew up. And I'm like, I have no idea why.
0: Exactly. Yes. And I think one of the frustrating things is just that people confuse popularity with credibility. And yes. I mean, that yeah. that's across that's across platforms though. It's yeah.
1: frustrating. Yeah, in order to have like whatever verification or everything, you have to have X amount of followers. It's just like, but are they putting out quality? Are they, you know, putting out the No, I was actually appalled
2: by the amount of people in healthcare that were like saying that there's not enough research on the COVID vaccine and they work in healthcare and they had a bunch of followers. And I'm like, you are trash. You are such a trash can. Why are you putting out? Yeah, information. Misinformation. And right. then because it's like, oh, well, they're a nurse or they're a so and so and they work in healthcare and they have a lot of followers. So, like, obviously, they're giving us the real inside scoop that the rest of the medical community doesn't want to. And I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> what? Yeah, are we're just, and me? those
0: posts always do so well because yes. I think it's like, it's fodder for people who are looking for, you know, it
2: verifies. Cause I yeah. to talk to um, people in my, um, gym powerlifting community aren't so much always like super pro science the way that i am um (laughs) a lot of them are but some aren't and it's like they find that one person to then be like see See, like that's the, they find that one person to support their opinion. And then it's like, it doesn't matter how many studies you can show or how much evidence and research it's like, oh no, but that one nurse said, and I'm like, oh, okay, well that one nurse that's is a true. moron. I know. Just cause, yeah. Yeah. Like, so it is yeah, hard and- though, because some people it does give a platform to anyone who wants a platform. And sometimes just because you even have a degree or credential to your name doesn't mean you're giving out good information also. So I think that is the scary part of social media too.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's really frightening whenever we see. Yeah, I think we all rally around like the same posts. I think when we see them, yes, <laughs> because people always yeah, send it to me. So be like, well, what do you
2: think about this? And I'm like, I think they're an idiot, and you should be able to think that, like, uh, decipher that as well. I'm like, you're sending it to me because you want like my opinion on it. And I'm like, you already know. Like the fact that you're even sending it to me, it's because you already know it's crap.
0: Come on, <laughs> <Yeah>. do better.
2: <laughs> I'm it's like, just Don't crap. Don't support them. <laughs>
1: Yeah,
0: it's uh, it's tough.
1: What's uh, For you, in your opinion, what's been the best part of your social media reach?
0: Um, I think it's meeting a really diverse group of people. Um, I think people who are outside of my own field, people who are not even in medicine, some of whom are people who I've, you know, dreamed of getting to know a little bit or having a conversation with who I suddenly am able to, um, which is always fun. And, of course, like, a lot of opportunities professionally to, you know, speak at certain places and and do that sort of thing that I don't think I otherwise would have been able to, you know. I have um, I think when people recognize what I'm doing on there, I think that's it's, it's very validating. And it's just, yeah, I don't think that I ever before last year thought that I could ever, you know, have a feature on the New York Times or, like, get to speak at certain places and... You know last year i spoke at the was it last year yeah last year I spoke at the department of human uh, health and Human services about social media and and vaccines this was like pre covid <clears throat> and um and you know yeah i'm gonna be speaking at south by Southwest this year and just super exciting things that if it wasn't for this i wouldn't be able to do
2: have you ever had like a little like fangirl or like fanboy moment where like someone shared your post or liked your post that you were like oh my gosh this person liked my post or shared my post
0: ah! oh yeah definitely well uh, it depends on which platform i feel like it's mostly on tiktok that that happens um you know when certain people i found out were following me uh like hank green when he first got on the platform and was following me i was like what And, um, even people who are, yeah, non-medical or non-science, like, um, one of my favorite moments was Colleen Ballinger. I don't know if any of you know her, but she plays like Miranda Sings, like she's a a YouTuber and, um, yeah. So, uh, and having, yeah, being able to have conversations with these people is, yeah, I have, I have those moments.
1: (laughs) That's really cool. I know. Is there anything you want to myth bust about the social media space?
0: I keep going back to this idea that popularity isn't credibility and and that's really hard to tease out sometimes, you know, especially like you said, when people have like the credentials, but then, you know, they may not be the right person to talk about a certain topic or um, and so I try to like stay in my lane when I'm you know, you're not gonna be seeing me talk about like a OBGYN topic because that's just so outside of my comfort zone and area of expertise. Myth busting about social media. Whenever it's too good to be true, um, you know, that's also a red flag.
2: What is your like best advice to someone maybe not in healthcare or even like that I would give to maybe my own family that's not in healthcare, where I'm saying if you're looking for information online, this is what you should be looking for to make sure that it's reputable.
0: Yeah. There's so many elements that play into what makes someone credible or not and I think you know people who cite their sources and citing reputable sources, um, people who are uh, who you can ask about so like you know asking for second opinions from other people on social media or people or your own real life practitioner or provider and getting their opinion on it. Um, and uh, and yeah, like I think that those are those are some of the key things and also just, you know, I, I had a whole post about um, looking at the sources. I think that we just don't do a good enough job in equipping people with the ability to, like you said, decipher what good information is and knowing, you know, which medical journals are reputable and, you know, making sure that whatever is being cited is actually, you know, uh, up to date. Cause sometimes people are citing things from 20 years ago that are totally obsolete at this point. I
2: think you posted so, about that recently. Um, yeah. Uh The person that was posting about like celery juice citing (sighs) articles from like 20 20 years years ago.
0: ago. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the 90s were
2: cool, but we've got better info now.
0: And yeah, this is how some people are trying to sell their products is using outdated, you know, outdated, um, quote unquote, evidence or outdated studies.
1: So speaking to someone coming up in the healthcare field, um, what pieces of advice do you have for them? Three tips. Can you be, get specific on your tips? Like what pieces of advice do you have for
0: them? I would say, um, don't buy into what looks glamorous (laughs) because, um, people who make things look glamorous are probably working very hard to make it look glamorous. Um, I think uh you know just being aware of your role as a health professional or provider um at any time like that that identity that part of your identity doesn't go away as soon as you step outside of work um so being mindful of that gosh last thing three tips I would say you know I would say for especially for trainees and social media um just making sure that you're still focused on you know, your role as a health professional, because, you know, building that foundation is really important. Like if you are putting yourself out there as a social media superstar, um, because of your identity as a health professional, um, you better make sure that that part of your job is solid. You know, I think a lot of people are so obsessed with wanting to become famous or building a following that they let go of that, um, part of their, you know, understanding or education or training. And um, and without that, like, you know, if you really secure that part of your job, there are going to be opportunities that come your way that are going to be bigger than just, you know, things that come your way because you have a big following.
2: Okay, so you do all the social media stuff, all YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, all the platforms. You have the um, actual job as... In the Running hospital an doing all these procedures, you have the association, yeah. you're doing like eight million different things. When do you relax? Tough time for you. And yeah. what do you do to relax? Yeah. Like, how do you chill?
0: I mean, I'm constantly shuffling priorities. So it's definitely not like I have everything, you know, down pat. Um, and I think, you know, fortunately for me, social media is like something that's really enjoyable and that I, you know, even if I wasn't using it professionally I'd probably be scrolling all the time anyway so it's almost like you know melding those two interests together but there are times I have to totally disconnect and um, and more recently actually I feel like uh, an urge to do more of that like whenever I feel frustrated with social media that's a sign that I have to just like Step away, and um, and I do kind of like at what everyone else does, which is hard during the pandemic, you know, because I'm somebody who likes to explore my surroundings. I'm a city guy. I like to, you know, live in the city because there's so many things that are accessible. Um, but I also like just you know, doing watching Netflix and watching random YouTube videos and doing that sort of thing. Um, and and that's what I was doing earlier today, you know, just stepping away from from it a bit, you know.
1: Do you have anything coming up that you want to share with the audience, like anything you're looking forward to that you're doing, participating in?
0: Well, I alluded to the fact earlier that I'm going to be speaking at South by Southwest, which is kind of exciting. So that's like a little personal um, when is that? Yeah, when is that? It's gonna be in March, and unfortunately, it's everything's virtual. I really okay, wish I was gonna it say, is it remote you know, been... this year? <laughs> Gotta love a pandemic. <laughs> mm-hmm. a I know. Pandemic I feel like so many of these things would have been so much more fun had it, you know, had there not been a pandemic. But. Um, but I think, yeah, other things I would say is, again, the association. There's just so many fun things that we've kind of been quiet as we we're, like, regrouping. But um, but the things that we're going to be having, like these little courses with the social media platforms and, and things like that, I think are really going to be super exciting. So um, YouTube is – we have a session in February, mid-February with YouTube um, along with one in early March. I think one is about – like copyright issues um, that people face with YouTube because they get tons of questions about that. And I also have tons of questions about that. And in um, and the second one, I think is more on like production stuff, like how can you do make YouTube videos at home that, you know, um, that look great and, you know, that are um, what are those production tips that they can give us? So yeah, so that's what um what's coming up there. And we're also gonna have like these mini Zoom hangouts that we had at the end of last year where we would just have host a Zoom session and have people, members get on and discuss certain topics. And I think we'll some of them are really you know, important topics that we had last year, like about racial disparities and about, you know, approaching um, COVID and addressing that on social media. And we're going to even dive even deeper into some of those topics along with other things um, pretty soon
2: fun we're looking forward to all of that yeah in in order to
1: find all that is that on this that's on the instagram i'm assuming
0: yes and you know we're probably that's actually the best way probably to be to stay update up to date with these announcements is um is the instagram account which is a- a- h underscore org um but uh but if you were to sign up as a member you know you'll get all of our uh, newsletters and um, email updates and announcements that way too
2: so where can they find your instagram your yeah. youtube your twitter your tiktok all yourself of it? out
0: <laughs> it's very simple i have the same handle everywhere Austin Chang, MD. It's just one word, Austin Chang, MD. My last name is spelled with an I, C H I A N G, and I am on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, um, Clubhouse, and yeah, those are the the main platforms. I, I have like a Snapchat, but it's not. I don't really use it, you know, professionally. Um, I think I have enough. Uh, yeah, I use enough. He's like, social please don't send me Snapchats. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> yeah exactly
2: stay out of my dms yeah don't don't, still dm me
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah if anyone who does dm me like on instagram i eventually will get through and i say this all the time but i eventually will get through them and i read all of them um but it just takes a while to get through you know that like the yeah uh, Yeah, it's hard uh, uh, red box yeah yeah
2: it sits at 99 plus forever and then i
0: know same
2: it trying, is what it is. Trying to get better. At We're it. trying to, you know, when you're balancing so many things, it's hard know. though because it's like one out of every ten things is like a really cool, meaningful comment, and then the rest is just. Uh, it's so, so hard. Like what? Some of these
0: questions. Someone yeah. Some today of these questions sent are so. Seven
2: thousand dollar offer to kick them in the balls. <laughs> <laughs> Said <laughs> serious offer. That's something offer, I never seven, get thousand dollars to kick me in the balls and i'm like this is why i don't even go in that filtered box so then i miss like sometimes some people's like really good feedback or discussions with like really cool people that are things that are relevant to what we're doing on the podcast or with my powerlifting and then i'm like okay well it gets lost in the cesspool of like kick me in the balls so i just
0: yeah i I have never been never been asked to do that i well there's a first for Yeah, yes. I think people don't realize that, you know, we're inundated with, you know, I ha- I get, gosh, I, I want to say like 50 to 100, you know, actual emails a day. And then, um, you know, that's weeding out all the the garbage that I get through email. And then there's also like DMs on Instagram, and then the comments on the posts. And, you know, there's just so much that, that you know, I want to respond to everything, but it's just really hard. Yeah. How often yeah. do
2: you get asked about poop? Oh. <laughs> do you get dms a about lot. poop a lot that's <laughs> um, what i would figure i figure you're getting a lot of poop yeah poop in the dms
0: <laughs> poop and abdominal pain and a lot of these questions that i really aren't able to answer because yeah it's you can't just, give medical, you know, I know, medical advice you
1: can't do maybe. it
2: so. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> if you're having problems pooping, go to your primary care doctor. Thank and you. And they will refer you to a gastroenterologist from there. Yeah. You're welcome.
0: Yeah. And and the way I say, I tell this to everyone who asked me this is that I just, you know, I would be doing them a disservice by giving them, you know, an assessment with partial information. You know, you might send me everything that you have, but, and I get like, you know, PDFs in my Instagram DMs, but that might not be telling me the whole story, and I don't know, right? And um, without seeing someone in person, you just don't know if you get you're getting the full picture.
2: Thank you so Thank much. You, we were
1: of so excited to get you on. Yeah, we just love you, you guys. Aww. If you if you're not following him, please go follow him. He's just. You're hysterical. You're so educational. We just love everything you're doing. Keep it up. We can't wait to join your society. Everyone go join the society.
0: Thank you. I, am, I, I had so much fun. Uh, here today with you. This is so cool. Like really running the gamut of topics. So I yeah I had so much fun. Thanks for having me. One
1: day are we gonna do? We should do a. Um, are you gonna do a, a conference with your society? Like we should do a conference.
0: Yeah. So we had a virtual one, and the whole. But the, you know, I think that the big benefit of having something like that originally was for people to be able to get together in person. So hopefully one day we'll be able to do that. But um. But Everyone yeah, we're get
2: your vaccine yeah. so that I can do a conference and. <laughs> 2022 and then when it's done i can go get drunk and listen to megan the stallion and dance
0: <laughs> yes. with my new friend
2: austin thank you
0: thank you i would love to do, do i know that's the thing do is, i would on. love to do like tiktok dances with people
1: post pandemic we're planning we're definitely we can't wait to see you and, and hang out 2022 goals yes Let's get our
2: shit together yes guys. yes Wear your masks and get your shit together so that I can go (laughs) to a conference. (laughs) Thanks.
0: Get your vaccine. (laughs) Get your
2: vaccine. Wash your hands. Wear your mask. The whole
1: thing. All right. Well, thank thank you, you. Austin. We just love you. Thank
0: you. Thanks so much.
1: All right, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you are following us on our Instagram. That's at C-E-L-L-F-I-E underscore podcast. You can find all of our episodes over on www.selfiepodcast.com. Also on Spotify and iTunes. Yeah, pretty much anywhere you can grab your podcasts. And if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review... We're going to be sending you some swag with our swag bag. So make sure you leave your Insta handle in the review. You guys will be mailing
2: that over to you. We've been getting all sorts of new goodies for it too. Oh my gosh, you guys. New stickers, new badge reels, new pins. Thank you
1: so much for your reviews. That's what helps drive us forward as a show. That means so much to us, you know, having our community here with us. We just really appreciate it. Uh, make sure you're also following us on our Instas. That's at Nurse Tory
2: And at hey Samantha with two A's. And we can't wait to catch you next week. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.